LA probate expert, and this is our probateweekly.com uh, live stream. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern, and everything in between and on either side. Um, we get together every week and interview attorneys, vendors, um, uh, successful real estate agents, investors, uh, anybody who's involved at a high level of working in the probate real estate space to teach us all how to make more income, make more money, and in the long run, build more wealth and also be a better service to our customers in the market around us. Uh, so we do this every Thursday. I'm a real estate broker here in Los Angeles. I build a, I'm building a national team, um, and so uh, there, but there's no charge for this call, and really just do this to share as a mastermind. I, did, I started this call because I needed it. I needed a place to share and to learn and to bring people in that I wanted to learn from. And so we built this into what I think is the largest probate real estate uh, live stream in America today. And I'm really proud of that. Appreciate all you guys who are regular supporters. Thank you so much. Um, you can subscribe to this. You can join uh, probateweekly.com and we'll send out emails and text message reminders if you want to come on to the Zoom call. We're also on live stream on YouTube and Facebook. You're welcome to follow us there. Uh, subscribe on to YouTube. If you like what you see on YouTube, please hit the like button. We're looking to build our YouTube presence. It's a great tool for us to communicate with our customers and with the real estate agents and to get good feedback on the content. The goal of this is to be um, participative. I bring on um, uh, people to interview, and I purposely use the Zoom format because I can get 100 people on at one time. And you can ask questions if you come in. You can either put questions in the chat box. I have a couple already. Uh, you can promote your business in the chat box. Glad to have you do that. Um, uh, and you also can raise your hand. I'll call on you and or jump in and ask questions live. It's meant to be participative because the more we participate, the more we are involved camera on, ask questions, get involved, the more we learn. And the more you learn, the more you help everybody around you learn more. So it's meant to be participative. So feel free to jump in. If you're watching on Facebook and, or YouTube, feel free to put questions there. I'll either get to them live or circle back after the call. But if you want to participate live on the call on Zoom, we only have room for 100 people. And we usually fill up at some point and then uh, uh, it kind of bounces around uh, 90, 95 or so. So love to have you guys uh, on the call. Our guest is an attorney. She's running a little late. Uh, in Southern California, but she's a great guest. Um, it's something I've done a lot of business with and really want to share uh, her uh, insights to you guys. I think she'll be very, very valuable for you as you, if you're looking to build your business uh, as a, a real estate practitioner or investor in the space. So let me just go real quick, answer some questions up front, and then feel free to ask any other questions in the chat box while we get started. Um, Eva asks, is it important to have the case number when you write up the listing agreement? Eva, are you in California? I'm going to assume the answer is from Lancaster. Yeah. So in California, we have the California Association of Realtors. We use now the regular residential purchase agreement with a probate addendum. We used to have a separate probate purchase agreement. We don't have that anymore for residential property. In the probate addendum, it will ask you for the case number. It will also ask you when you have a signer who's an entity signer on a purchase contract, you want the case number as well. But is it essential you have the case number? I don't think you have to have it when you sign the listing. I don't think your listing is invalid without it. I would say ask your broker how they manage that. But I would say at our company, I believe if you have a listing agreement and left off the case number, it's still a valid listing contract, but it's more precise. And I think one of the things that I try to teach um, on this call is there's a right way to do everything and you want to do the right way. And one right way is have the case number and have it on the form and maybe even look up the file or have information from your client about the case. So I would say it's the right way to do business is to have the case number on the document. Why not? Um, but I would definitely not uh, listing the property until I have it, right? That's a, that's a personal decision you can make. And I would urge you to talk to your particular broker on how they, on how they hold on this. Um, okay, so we're going to turn off, uh, mute themselves. We're going to let people do that. Okay, good. So hopefully that answers your question, um, Eva. But again, I think it depends on your broker. I'm with the XP Realty, and we could take the listing. But I would say it's not the right way to do it, and we're going to get it amended at some point uh, when we're there. Sandra says, hi from Burbank. Hey from Burbank. Great. Kelly Conley from Long Beach, down the 562. Kelly, always great to have you on board. Feel free, anybody who wants to put your information in the chat box. It's meant to be referrals. It's meant to be helping each other. If you're a vendor as well, if you're a lender or a title rep, feel free to reach out, put your information in as well. Karen, Karen's amazing from the OC. I grew up in the OC, so I'm definitely all for that. Uh, question uh, for attorney guests. What authority, if, uh, if any, does the order for probate provide 
They're not provided by the letters of administration. Wow. So I think you're going to find that the letter of administration document the, the authority. Uh, and on the um, order that the judge signs, it's going to say limited or full. They're just going to check the box. And then from there, you're going to have to understand what the law means for your particular client. But we'll ask Mina when she's online to give more detail. But I would say that the letters of authority are more of a form. And on the actual probate order, it has the checkbox for full or limited. And then those are the two types of, um, for, as far as we, we're mostly concerned with as real estate agents, the sell of the real property, the full authority generally means you don't need to have court approval, though that can change if there's objections. Uh, and limit authority almost always means you need court approval of the sale of property. Um, and so that will determine there the type of authority that the court grants you. Hope, hope that answers your question, but we'll, we'll ask again when Mina's on. Um, Alex asks, what's the most effective way to prospect probates? Uh, so, Alex, um, where, you, where do you do business, Alex? Because I would say the answer to that, having done this myself for a while now, LA County, okay, so you're a neighbor of mine. Uh, I would say that having done this for a while, it varies based on where you are. It varies based on your market, and I'd also say it varies based on your business, um, meaning um, I, I say when you start out in real estate, you need to talk to a lot of people. Generally, you need to cold call three hours a day and talk to as many people as you can. And by doing that, you'll learn how to convert the leads you do get into business. So I would always urge somebody who's new in the business to start with the phone calling um, or emails. I would say the emails are probably of limited value um, because the few that have emails get so much attention that they're gonna probably disregard and go to junk. And, and by definition, uh, you're spamming people because you don't have permission to email them. So I would say um, I'm not aware of anybody who's built their business uh, emailing probate um, attorneys or probate uh, petitioners via email. I do know several based on phone calls. Uh, I've done it myself and done, done well with it. So I would definitely recommend making phone calls. Um, I might add to that that you might send out postcards, but my rule would be not to postcard anybody that I'm not also in contact on the phone with. I would never... Um, Mail something to somebody that I couldn't also call them back. Um, okay, Eva says, I have four. I don't remember what four is. What is that in answer to? Eva from Lancaster. Oh, you have four, you have four listings or four properties? Is that what you're, that what you're referring to? Um, you know, we've got a lot of questions, so I'm going to, it's kind of hard to keep up with her. Eva, I'm not sure what your, your four has to do with, but, um, oh, four that case numbers. You have four listings. Okay, got it. So yeah, I don't think you need the listing, um, but what I will say is that technically speaking, a listing is not binding on the signer until not only they have a case number filed, but the court gives them the authority to sign the contract. Because think about it, the person's owned by, let's say, Joe Smith and he passes away. If Joe Smith passes away, he can't sell his own house. That's the definition of probate, is you need the court, and there's our guest, Mina, um, uh, by definition, they can't sell their own house. So if you haven't filed probate yet, it's difficult because the person who owns the property is passed. They file the, pro the probate, and then they are able to um, uh, seek authority from the court. Once they have the authority, uh, they're then able to sign a, a binding contract. And so there's a question. In fact, that's, the first, uh, that's one question I'm going to ask Mina about uh, signing when you don't have um, the contract. Mina, welcome to our call. Hi, thank you for having me, and I apologize for being late. That's okay. Well, we know you're busy. I'm not paying your full billable rate. I'm not paying your normal uh, <laughs> state rate or whatever you call it. So I can't afford to uh, to be too particular. It's great to see, it's always great to see you. I mean, I, how are you doing? I'm well. How about you? Good. Nice you travel. You. you travel quite a bit. You had some COVID stuff. You had some good family stuff going on. So it's been we've been talking a long time. So I'm really excited to have you on and. Um, uh, we started kind of answering some questions up front, but let's kind of go back to the beginning here and start with you. Um, can you give us a little background? Just where did you grow up, and then how did you get into law, and then how did you get into probate specifically? So I'm originally Iranian. I, I uh, lived in Iran till about uh, when I was 12 years old. Wow. Uh, then we, my family moved to the United States after the Iranian Revolution, and um, at some point my father got a job in Los Angeles, so we ended up here. In Los Angeles. Now that was many, many, many years ago, but um, that's sort of how things got started with me, you know, 
being here. Um, and what else did I want to tell you? What was the next question you had? I'm sorry. Well, let's talk about how you got into law. I mean, I think every Persian family, you have to be a doctor or a dentist or an attorney. Is that the rule? Yes, yes. I, they don't want <laughs> you to do anything else. Actually, that, that's sort of true. Um, I couldn't be a dentist. My mother was a dentist all the way till she turned 85 years old. She practiced. Wow. I couldn't take it. I, I couldn't stand blood. So wow. that was not the career for me. And I had a couple cousins who were lawyers. So I decided to try to see if that was something that was suitable for me. Um, but I originally wanted to actually become an architect and my father wouldn't have it. So that's how I ended up in law. Wow. And so, um, and then how'd you end up in probate? Because you're, you're, you are what I always describe as the type of attorney that we wanted for business to, that you specialize in, in your case, even specialize, specialize, you're in probate. And then within probate, your husband does more administration and you focus more on litigation. How'd you end up in probate specifically? Um, when I was in law school, I went to school at night and I worked during the day. So I worked for a gentleman who did uh, estate planning and probate. So that's all I learned how to do. Uh, and when I was looking for a job, uh, you know, just after I passed the bar, people wanted to give me a job where workers comp lawyers or PI lawyers. And that was not something that I was interested in. So um, I decided to give it a shot. And against my husband's former boss's advice, I decided to set up shop. Wow. And um, at, after about a year, things were working and I was getting clients and uh, my husband then left that firm and joined me. So that's how things got started. Well, wow. uh-oh. Oh, is there some relationship between, between the two attorneys there? Be careful. Sexual harassment, you know how those laws are today. Be very careful. <laughs> well, we were already married by that time. So it was a it was a little too late for that. <laughs> well, it's not too late for that, actually. You're married, so hopefully it's a good thing for you guys to, to yeah. play in the office or something. So good. So, um, and then I think I had that correct, right? You guys, as a law firm, when I go to your website, it just says Los Angeles probate uh, circuit law that you guys are firmly in that niche. And I think as a real estate agent, there's nothing worse than having a client who calls me up and says they want me to list the house. They're in probate. They have an attorney already. They're already filed. I search them online, and I see that that attorney specializes in DWIs, uh, family law, probate law, uh, criminal law, 15 other things I never even heard of before. Uh, and what I came to learn in my experience in the court was that the best attorneys, the ones who really specialize in a niche. So you've gotten all in on this. Was that a business decision or it just worked that way for you? Or how did you end up? It, it just worked out that way. It, was not, it, it wasn't anything that we could say was intentional, but we both sort of, uh, my husband came from, a real estate and business um, background. And he, when he joined my firm, he was at the same, at, at the time he was involved in that sort of thing, but quickly everything sort of shifted into planning and administration and with planning and administration always comes probate. So it was a very quick shift in terms of, uh, you know, what we were doing, but you know, his, his practice started with another firm. So his, you know, he brings with him some of that experience as well as uh, trust the state's litigation. And I also think I ever told you this, but I really learned a lot from you about networking at the court because I noticed how you um, have relationships, deep relationships pre-COVID with the other attorneys in the probate bar. And as a result, got referrals from them, gave referrals to them, like things that you didn't do, things that they don't do. I just noticed that was a, but it was really natural. It wasn't like you were on the hunt for business. You were just developing relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Was it natural? Uh, or was it? It was, it was very natural. Some, some of it is obviously, you know, conscious, but um, I think most of it is natural. I think you have to like to make friends in whatever area uh, you practice in, whether it's real estate, whether it's law or any other business and figure out who's doing what that you're not doing. Uh, or what complementary businesses are sort of on the side of what you do that you can help other people. And, you know, over time, you know, those people will refer back to you. And I don't think one can expect an immediate return from networking. If you're expecting that it be immediate, um, that's not how it works, at least not 
it, it that was hasn't been my experience my experience has been that it takes you know two to three years to build these relationships you know during COVID, it was kind of hard because you know i haven't been to the courthouse in in you know since COVID started but wow. i have to still maintain the same relationships with the same you know set of people so that they benefit from my services and over time perhaps they refer back to us so you have to find other ways to network right. um some of the networking comes by you know picking up the phone and calling is always a good way and trying to figure out how you can be of service to the other folks um is really the key yeah. but um bill's a master <laughs> at networking i've watched him at the courthouse i know how he does it he does it with intention i and i'm more like on the periphery of intention but bill go <laughs> Bill's got a, an agenda, he's got a plan of action, he's got a list. So if you're a realtor or in the real estate business, follow what he says, what he says <laughs> works. I've, wa I've watched, I was one of his victims as, as he would call it. So I actually met, <laughs> I, I met Bill at the courthouse when he was doing his networking. And um, that's how I was able to do business with Bill. But um i joke with him and i say you know one of his victims but i think that i benefited from his service to my client and my client was very happy with his uh, services in fact that that case just went in, in, into you know um basically went into probate today after you know three years of litigation but um one of the things that i watched bill do is I watched him figure out how to deal with a, a possible foreclosure. That's something that we were facing. And he came in and rescued that case from an inevitable foreclosure um, and got things wrapped up so that we were able to sell it while in probate and while, while the two people were actually fighting with each other. So that was, um, that was a crazy one. Still is a crazy one. I guess it's still ongoing. Uh, well, it, yes, it is ongoing, unfortunately, because sometimes people just can't agree to anything, even if the judge orders them one way or another. One thing amazed me about you in, in, in attorneys in general, I think that you're you know, very good at this, you're a master at this, is that on one case, you're litigating against somebody, right? So here you're, you're, you're the hired gun to financially maybe ruin the other side or, or cause them harm from their perspective, in your case, enforce the rights for your client and, and get your client what's fair and just. And you do it, in, you have to do it in a way that you and the, you know, you do your job professionally, you can't, you know, you have to have the proper lawyerly demeanor in court and in the process or else the judge is gonna get on you. But you also in a way that the other attorney seems to appreciate and respect you more, not less at the end of the deal. I think with realtors, the nature of real estate agents is we go so quickly to emotions and so quickly to to fighting. And it just seems that it's more common amongst attorneys in particular to kind of hold on to that or, or, or not show it to each other somehow. And, and in your case, to build a relationship. So that attorney down the road says, hey, Mina, you know, I don't really litigate. Can, can you help me with this client? And that becomes business for you. Where does that come from or how does that happen? Or is that just something you develop over time? Well, first of all, I, I, I think there is a sense of um respect that goes on you know with the other parties you know with the other opposing counsel i think you have to have some respect for what they do we are hired guns Every, everybody that, that represents somebody is hired to accomplish a particular end nobody really wants to destroy the other side i i think that that that's a, a perception from a client's perspective but that really isn't uh the way that things work in real life is that if you go all the way out to destroy somebody, you know, deals don't get made, cases don't get settled, you end up in trials, unfortunately, sometimes that happens anyway. But um, I think that if you have a rapport with the other side, and you can help settle the case, number one, a settlement gets your client what they need faster, okay, and at a lesser cost. I, and I think those are forgotten things. Sometimes in the midst of emotions, clients forget that. Right. And they, they want to go all the way to trial 
not knowing how much that trial is going to cost. But from an attorney's perspective, you know, we're here to close the case. We're, we're here to get everybody. Nobody likes exactly what happens in a settlement. Nobody is happy with the um, exact amount of the settlement, but it's something everybody can live with. So we encourage people to go to mediation and often enough, it, it is a subtle art of um, rapport, but um, a, a forceful representation along with rapport. So it, it's kind of a mixed bag of things. That's why it's called settlement. It's not win meant because both sides don't win. Both sides have to settle to get to the middle at some point. Um, one question I love to ask attorneys, have you seen the movie My Cousin Vinny and what are your thoughts of that movie? I love the movie. I thought it was great. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think I've seen it more than one time, actually. Okay. Uh, to, to your recollection, is that, is that a fair a way, at least the, the, the judge is trying to enforce a certain lawyerly demeanor? I try to tell real estate agents, when you go in court, you want to act like an attorney. You want to dress like an attorney. You want to act like an attorney. You want to know the rules. Um, is, that, is that a fair representation of that? I know it's comedy, but um, do you see it that way? It, it is a fair representation. I think no matter where you are, I think whether or not you're in court or um, you're in any kind of business, you want to blend in with the rest of the folks. So if the judges are used to seeing you with a jacket on, um, although now the, the requirements is, is somewhat looser, um, they prefer that because it's also yeah. a sign of respect to the court that you, know, you, you put a jacket on today, that means that you went that, you, know, you put that extra effort so if you're a realtor going to court, I think that would be helpful to you, you know, doing that. You know, I was uh, on, on the case I did with you that you talked about where um, I think technically it was the temporary administrator. So I was technically representing both sides as the realtor. Um, I was called as a witness. At that time, I was in Florida on vacation with my wife and I packed a suit and a white shirt and a silk tie so that when I was uh, called in and it was brief and it wasn't a big deal, but to go in front of the judge, I wanted to, to look appropriate uh, because the judges remember you. And I think one of the things, uh, you know, on a small level, I've had judges I've been through several times and I've earned a certain amount of respect and appreciation. Um, and I know you as well. You've been in front of attorney, uh, judges and I've seen them say because of who you are, they'll make an agreement or they'll make a concession or they'll trust you for something. So talk about the, the value of the reputation that you have with the judges. Now it's more difficult obviously with the video versus being in court, but I'm sure it's still important to your practice, isn't it? It is important. I think that there's a sense of um, trust that comes with many years of practice. I've been, been doing probate for 30 years. So um, I have seen most of the judges at least several times, and we have 10 of 10 probate judges in LA, just in the downtown uh, LA and not counting any of the periphery the outer courts and, and Antelope Valley. Um, so, you know, you come across the same people over and over and over again. There is a sense of comfort knowing that, you know, sometimes they've seen my papers go through before right. and they realize that, you know, I, you know, these are standard things for us. Um, just like anything else. I mean, if you went to the dentist and you went to the same dentist for 30 years, there is a level of trust between you and the dentist you know that's another professional but you know it would be somewhat the same concept because the judges look at us as people who are professionals in their courtroom um so i, I think yeah there is a there is a sense of trust that you know i'm i'm certainly not one of those people who would be trying to do anything most of what i do is pretty you know simple and straightforward um and what isn't straight, simple and straightforward has to be put in papers based on some law, right. something out there. Right. But I mean, I've seen, I've seen judges. But I There's think a little you bit would appreciate. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I lost you for a second. You're saying that I would appreciate. I, I think you, you would appreciate being in front of the same set of people yourself because there, there is a um, level of comfort when you've appeared in front of the same judge, let's say 10 times, you kind of know right. their demeanor, you know right. what they expect. Right. So now this is a little sensitive. So if you want to bow out of this question, I get it, but I have to ask it at least try. So 
you know, having gone to court quite a bit and also having watched video, now you can see the whole, now you can see the whole case um, being called um, more easily. Um, I recognize attorneys like you who are knowledgeable and, and experienced and know the, the flow and know the procedure and follow the procedure. And I'm sure like me, again, if you're not comfortable, um, you also see those that aren't. You see the attorney who might be one of the world's great attorneys and one of the great legal minds, but maybe has never done a probate case in Los Angeles County ever before and is stunned when the judge asks things like, have you checked the notes? And they go, well, what are the notes? I've seen that happen. That's like the classic. So you see, you see that what, taking off your hat as a businesswoman, but maybe just talking to um, families that are considering hiring an attorney, what should go into, how do they evaluate from the outside the right attorney and what should they do to avoid? What I see is it could be a great attorney. It could be a great human being. They just don't know what they're doing in probate and it affects their outcome. I see that all the time. I think there's about three different levels of experience in any field, you know, given whether it be law or anything else. And I think you have to ask yourself the question of, um, does the person have the requisite experience I need? Sometimes people come into uh, a, whether it be a probate case or any kind of case, believing that they can use this lawyer to accomplish a limited end of things, for example. And sometimes people will select a younger lawyer because they, you know, they tend to charge less, et cetera. Um, with that, of course, there's, you know, experience has a value. So sometimes you get a young lawyer, maybe they'll charge you, you know, X dollars per hour, but you may pay for the learning over time. Right. Sometimes you go with a middle of the road lawyer with, you know, relevant experience and, you know, depending on client's willingness to pay, they may or may not be willing to pay. And then you have the third level, which is, you know, hiring a specialist. Hiring a specialist is expensive in any field, but you don't pay them to learn. You, that, that has been done before. So you are getting the benefit of their experience in exchange for their hourly rate, whatever that be. Um, but I think a good question in any field would be, you know, where, where are you in this specific experience that I need? How many probates have you done, for example, to completion, not just the beginning? Right. How many sales have you done to completion? Those are two different things. I, I can do many different probates and not, not do a single sale. That, that's a, sometimes a large possibility. And then um, depending on whether or not you have a case that has a simple litigation, that's another set of uh, requirements. And then one that has a complex litigation, it has the different set of requirements. But sometimes you have to pick and choose between a, uh, a small firm and a large firm. And those two also have different uh, uh, requirements. So sometimes, you know, if I am going to bring somebody uh, a case, I'm going to have to evaluate whether or not my small firm is going to be able to do all the things that this particular client needs in a case. So that is one set of questions that I would ask myself. And then I would ask myself, if I send this, for example, to a 50 per person law firm, is the client going to get the service that they're going to need? Because a 50 person law firm may charge $750 an hour or $850 an hour. I, you know, these are all, you know, different possibilities. So it's a, it's a balance of experience versus hourly rate versus size of the firm. I think those three things are the ones that I would look for. Great. So talk a little bit about the difference between a probate um, administration attorney, which I think is your husband and your firm, and a probate litigation attorney, which is you, if I, as I understand it. What, there are people who meet somebody, but they need litigation, and they hire maybe a one-person firm only does one of those. What's, somebody, what's the difference that you see as a litigator versus um, really doing administration? 
Okay. So when you do administration, whether it be in trusts or probate, uh, you are following just, just a set of procedures. When you're doing litigation, it's, it's dynamic. It changes from day to day. Uh, what you need to prepare for, what motions are going to be coming your way are, are different in every case. And it may vary um, 100% in even in one case. So the people who do administration, um, they deal with just you know, a, a set of tasks and uh, getting the people through that, the process to the end. The people who do the litigation, they have to be prepared. There's a lot of adrenaline involved in litigation. Yeah. So a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so if you have a, a case that requires, you know, motions or, you know, being, being able to be able to be prepared for things on the fly, that's what litigation uh, involves. Most people who do administration don't have any of that. So oftentimes people call and, or I'll see on the chat the people say, well, I need a probate attorney and you dig a little deeper and you find out, well, I need a probate attorney because there's five siblings and they're all killing each other. <laughs> they're all shooting each other and stabbing each other with knives. And so they need an attorney to get them through. Well, that's not just an attorney. That's, that's by definition litigation. If they're fighting legally, that's what litigation really is. At what point do you see it kind of crossing the line of it being on your desk versus uh, maybe your husband's desk? At what point, or on the intake of a case, what's, What's kind of the criteria we say, well, that's a litigation. Everybody hopes their case is easy. Everybody thinks their case is easy when they start, I think, or most people do. Um, but what's your experience on that? When did, when's that cross the line and become litigation? I think we can tell within the first 10 minutes when we speak with somebody whether or not that case is going to be just administration or, or if it's going to result in people fighting with each other. Dynamics of... Um, litigation are usually who the parties are. Okay, are there, for example, uh, siblings that have had a history of not getting along? That's one. Are there children from a first marriage and a second wife who have not gotten along? That's I, I always that's are, always a clue. Those are, and, and there's, there's standard types of cases that, that end up in litigation but children who often are trying to take, in conservatorships, children are competing with each other to take care of the parents. And sometimes that becomes a battleground. Um, but we could tell, I mean, I, just, just because we've heard the patterns so many times, I think within 10, 15 minutes of a call with somebody, we can tell what we can expect, at least on our end. It must be difficult to be in litigation and not bring it home with you. I know you have kids, you have a husband. So just speak as a, as a businesswoman, how do you manage your health? I know it's an issue. I'm a member of the, I'm an affiliate member of the bar. And I see a lot of classes on, you know, mental health and, and balance of life and such. Uh, do you have any particular tips that you give? Because they're the same ones for us as real estate agents. Any particular tips on how to manage your uh, mental health and physical health and uh, all that family life uh, as well? Well, as far as family life is concerned, it's become more difficult since, you know, many of us work from home now. So that, it, you know, it used to be easy, you know, you'd go to the office and then you clock out and you, then you go to the grocery store and buy your groceries for the rest of the day and come and cook. So that was, that used to be my routine, but now it's kind of like, it's now, it mixes itself in. So I have to, at some point, go to the office and then come back to the computer here in this is my kitchen right here. Um, so it, it, it has changed. One, one thing that works for me, and I'm not sure if it works for everybody else, is gardening. Gardening really, really soothes you. I mean, if you go out in nature and do anything around anything that's great, it, it really um, changes the way you look at the world. And it takes down the, the um, adrenaline quite a bit. Yeah. So I, that would be my recommendation. But if somebody may do yoga, some I, I do watercoloring, and that that would be my son who just passed behind me to buy the birthday, by the way. Um, but in in terms of uh, whatever works for you, anything that just takes your mind away, you garden and you have to water the plants or clip the plants. It, it you know it helps you kind of get out of your own head, so to speak. 
I agree. Being outside and doing something vigorous. I, I, I do a power walk for about an hour every day, get sunshine, get some fresh air, and move around quite a bit, and uh, definitely helps me keep my sanity. So um, uh, Colleen notes, I'm in California. Do we need to research your own state's procedures and processes? I'd say, Colleen, every state has different laws, and then every county has different procedures or rules. And so to the extent you want to be an expert in your market area, I would definitely encourage you to learn the state laws as best you can and the local procedures in your county and follow those. Um, uh, Mina, do you, you're, you're licensed in California. Do you practice just LA County, Southern California, other counties, any other states? I mainly work in LA County. Um, I can work in all of California. Probate is pretty fungible, but uh, most of my life experience has been here. I've appeared in San Francisco County, San Diego County, Orange County before, but my preference is for LA County, mainly because, you know, if you're familiar with the judges, it, it gives you a, a, an advantage in court. Yeah, I've seen that about you. I think, again, that's one of those things that you can't put that in your business card or your website that you've practiced before all of or almost all the probate judges and they know you, like you, and respect you. But I see that and I see, I've seen the value of that uh, for you personally, as well as you were, you know, on the cases we were involved with. Um, it's just interesting for anybody who's listening. I was thinking, you know, when uh, as I was preparing for this, I, I've been both represented your client. Um, uh, I've also represented the buyer who bought a property of clients where we, they went into litigation or threat litigation, whatever conflict of some sort. So we, I was on with you. We were kind of against or on the other side. Uh, and then you refer me to somebody who's, uh, down the road, um, a past client who we're, I'm working with as well. So I've really seen you from all three angles. I feel like I have a unique perspective of you. That I'm not just a happy client. I'm not just the upset party on the other end. I've actually seen it all sides. So I, I feel qualified to uh, to psychoanalyze you, I think, more than anybody else other than your husband or your, well, your I kids. I hope not. <laughs> if you psychoanalyze me, I have some <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay. So um, let's get into some procedural questions. One of the questions I got asked earlier um, was the difference, how would you summarize if you're talking, of course, you don't do administration, you do more litigation, but I'm sure at some point you talk to clients, how do you describe the difference between full authority and limited authority? I understand from the real estate sale, court confirmation or not, but what else is involved in the process that's different between um, full authority and limited authority? So usually when you have um, limited authority, it implies that certain types of real estate transactions that you need to do, for example, exchange of sales, et cetera, require a court to bless that transaction. And um, what the difference between the two sometimes are is the level of bond that a person posts. So if I have full authority, um, it's pretty much a simple transaction because I give what's called a notice of proposed action to the beneficiaries. I, you know, I give them some time to let us know if they're going to object or not. And then if they consent or if they don't object, one or the other, then the transaction goes pretty much like a regular sale, very similar to a regular sale. But if somebody comes and objects, then I, I have to, I'm required to then take that to the court and say to the court, you know, this person objects, but these are the terms. We think it's better for the estate to sell this property, for example, at the at these defined terms. And then the court can decide whether or not that's really in the best interest of the estate. And that beneficiary who objects gets an opportunity to come to the judge and say, hey, I don't agree with this. I think, you know, um, they're underselling the property or, right. or the terms are no good. Sometimes, right. you know, beneficiaries have different expectations, but most of these cases are well supported by appraisals by a probate referee who's the court's appraiser and then by the marketing efforts of the realtor who is uh, actually selling the property so it's a mix of where those lines cross you know have you done enough marketing sometimes a beneficiary may have a point will say well you know you sold this to the first person who came that was an adequate marketing that wasn't put on the mls long enough uh, you know, those are sometimes issues that come about. Or sometimes there's a beneficiary that lives in the property and wants to delay that sale as long as they can. So what they do is 
they object. And then we go in front of the judge and that's a couple more months. And then sometimes there's another couple more months. So that's sometimes how beneficiaries manipulate the situation. In whether or not it's limited authority or full authority, that can still happen. But the differences between the two are if people don't object or, or if they consent, that a full authority case ends up selling much faster and getting closed much faster so people right. can get their money. Right. And that's why we encourage the, you know, the attorney to follow the notice of proposed action right away once we have the terms ready to go and then be ready to close right after that because the longer it sits out there, the more likely somebody comes to the brother and says, hey, they sold it too cheap and, and gives them more time to, to object. Whereas, you know, there's a statutory limit. You have to give them notice. And at that point, they've kind of given up their right if they don't object. So I think speed is really important in those cases. Um, next question is one that's interesting. So I don't know that you know this, um, but you, I do know that you know Paul Horn, who is an attorney in LA County. And I don't know if you know that he, he um, teaches a class for the California Association of Realtors to certify agents. Um, not sure what the certification, it's not required, it's, it's nice to have. And I think he does a good job of explaining the probate process. In that class, he teaches that while you can't sign a binding contract until the letters of authority are issued to the estate, that one can sign a non-binding listing agreement and as long as you disclose to all the parties that it's not binding. So if I had a family member who's going to be, who's filed a petition to be an administrator or executor, I can sign, he would say, you can sign a listing agreement that says, oh, by the way, this isn't binding. This is just more advisory. Once you get the letters, we have to get everything re-signed. Some companies allow that, some don't. So it varies on your broker and your company policy and such. As an attorney, how would you advise a client who was anxious, they want to get started, they're nervous, maybe there's a foreclosure, they're not paying the mortgage, it's vacant, they have problems with squatters, they want to get it done quickly, but you got to get it done legally. Would you, would you advise and author, approve them or encourage them to do a contract with those disclosures to get the process started, or you think that's just too aggressive and you should wait till letters are approved? Uh, I, I don't do it that way. Everybody you know, has their own way. And the reason why I don't agree with that is this. Let's just say that, Bill, uh, you came to me and you said, um, I want to sign a non-binding contract with you. A, my client who is the hasn't become the administrator yet doesn't have any authority to bind the estate. So that's one. Number two is, you know, let's just say you sign a contract with somebody who would be administrator, how would either party enforce that contract? By its sense, non-binding means it's not really a contract. Right. So that, uh, and I know realtors often like to help and I know they want to help with the cleanup of the property, et cetera, et cetera. But how do you, how do you achieve the result that you want and not have any risk? As a realtor, Let's say you advance the cost of junk removal, okay, before the um, administrator is appointed. Okay. Isn't there something that the administrator can, the day after they're appointed, can't they actually change their mind and say, you know what? Yeah. My next door neighbor said he's going to come and haul everything away. Meanwhile, you've paid a, a junk removal company. How do you enforce that? It's a non-binding agreement. How, yeah, how do you go about doing that? So, you know, it gets kind of murky. You know, everybody has their own comfort level of advising people. My advice is just, you know, have the relationship with the prospective client in the sense that they will trust you and sign with you as soon as letters are issued. Right. And I think that's the, I, I think Paul probably is encouraging you to develop that Yes, for sure. Yeah. For, he, he was just, he just laid out the process. And of course, real estate agents here, oh, I could get, get a listing, I'll do it right away. And I think sometimes we have to think through the, like you just pointed out, if you think through the whole process, does that really make sense? And maybe it does in a rare case, but generally speaking, it's, um, it can be difficult. It depends on the circumstances, I would think. At best. So when, when you sign the listing agreement, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that your listing agreement usually requires the person who signs it to be the administrator of the estate of the decedent. Correct. 
And when they're not appointed yet, when letters have not issued, they don't have that title. Correct. They don't own the property that you're, Correct. you're trying to list, Correct. right? Correct. So it, it can create a lot of problems. It's like you sign an agreement with me to sell my next door neighbor's property. I don't own right. that property, right? right. Uh, well, the, well, there's another issue with it too also, which is if, if, if an agent does sign the listing agreement and puts in the MLS, which I guess, again, legal, the MLS will allow it as long as you disclose to not just on your listing, but to prospective agents. By the way, this listing isn't binding. It's pending, you know, letters of, of uh, authorization. Right. Um, there's nothing preventing a realtor from calling the client directly because technically you'd have a binding contract. So they could call the attorney or call the client and say, hey, your listing's not binding. I'll do it for less or I'll do it better. And you kind of put a, a target maybe on your back if you have the right relationship. I, I think it creates an ethical issue too, because yeah, the other uh, realtors can pick up the phone. You don't represent the administrator. You represent the person as an individual. So isn't there something that I know realtors have these rules of ethics that you're not going to go after somebody else's Correct. client, but um, those are two different capacities. Correct. You coming to me to sell my house is different than you coming to sell a house where I'm named as an administrator. Those are, it, it, you know, it's a comp it is very, it, it's not simple for sure. And I think, again, he describes legally, could you do this? I guess you could do it. But I think there's complications and risks and, and something you have to kind of think through. So, um, okay. So just to kind of go back, circle back a little bit, Chris asked a question, what, what's a usual probate litigation matter? I think the answer is going to be none are usual. That's the nature of why you do it. They're all a little different. They're all a little wacky and have their own uh, uh, unique twists on it. But you tell me, what if somebody said, what's the usual probate uh, litigation matter that you handle? What is the most common? Most common, most common is an undue influence case. Uh, second most common is a forgery case. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, well, um, okay, hold on. This is interesting now. Let's, there's a lack of capacity case. Let's, oh, I didn't realize. You, those I, are all, I don't see as many of those uh, as, as an agent. So let's talk about that. So undue influence, let's talk about that. What does that look like? And how would a, maybe a realtor notice that and maybe flag that to uh, the family or flag that to an attorney? So an undue influence case is one where someone has um, on a repeated basis tried to get someone to take a particular course of action. In wills and trusts, it's fairly common, either to sign a will, a trust, a codicil, or an, or an amendment. Um, it, it's on, honestly, it's a psychological game where people try to be kind to somebody uh, and, and try to get them to take a certain action or they badger them in order to get them to, you know, take care of something or um, they control their food, their right to sleep. Sometimes it's caregivers. Sometimes it's family members. 90% are family members. 90% uh, influence. Yeah. comes from relatives. Um, sometimes they're from girlfriends. You know, it, it varies from case to case. And so the girlfriend or caregiver or family member who's living in the house with the, the person who ends up passing at some point brings them a will or a change to their trust. And instead of giving everything equally to five siblings, give everything to my favorite sibling, Joe, who happens to be the caregiver, or give everything to my caregiver, Marianne, or my girlfriend, so-and-so. Is that is that what we're talking about? Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, a child lives with the parent. Sometimes a child doesn't live with the parent, but is the main caregiver. Right. Uh, comes to parent's house every day. And the parents right. see that child as sort of their lifeline. Right. And so the child, you know, gets to be in the position of power. I hate to say that, but that's really the, the, the truth. Uh, power over the parent so that they can overpower their own judgment essentially right. right so there's probably some cases where that's a reasonable um transaction in a sense right you're taking care of me at the end of my life my other kids abandoned me you know I, I can only live really with your help and as a result of that i want you to have this i can imagine somebody of full you know mind might make that decision in certain circumstances 
but I think what what you're talking about is when it's not the case and they're putting on, they're during undue influence, hey, you need to sign this if you want me to continue. How do you prove that? What is that? What's that look like as a, a legal matter? Undue influence is, is a very difficult thing to prove, but there are methods of proving them up. They, they are never proven by direct evidence. They're always proven by what's called circumstantial evidence, evidence that's surrounding uh, a particular set of facts, not, not the, the facts themselves. So it could be that, for example, mom had the begin beginnings of dementia and was becoming more dependent on child number one for example then uh or some of those circumstances and did the child for example accompany them to an attorney's office did they make the appointment did they pay for the appointment there's a lot of things around uh the actual change of the document that are more relevant than the actual document themselves. Um, but they're, they're not easy cases to prove, but you know, you know, they are doable. They, they go to court often. Sometimes they're combined with lack of capacity. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just straight undue influence. Sometimes they're mixed with elder abuse. Uh, elder abuse often comes in on the side of undue influence as where a child was isolating a parent or the person who benefited from the circumstance isolated them. Sometimes the isolation is so subtle that you have to kind of put together the facts of, you know, who saw the person, did anybody see this person or was the person who passed away um, someone who didn't have any friends. Sometimes people who don't have many friends are easier to influence. Of course. And those are those are indicators that the judges look for. But in California, we have some really terrific case law that tells a story of undue influence, of how these people, you know, influence this person. One was they influenced them in all aspects of their life, trying to get them to sign a promissory note. If that didn't work, they try to take them on lavish vacations in hopes of getting them to agree to sign something. Wow. Um, but those are the things that you look for. I mean, it, and it's hard for realtors to get that, but you know, if you've seen it a few times, you will know, you know, how, how it works. It's subtle and that's why it's litigation. It's not a filing. It's not a form. It's a process of right. litigation that, that you're involved with. The other one that, that we deal with and come across from time to time uh, and I'm aware you know, we have about five minutes left here. I want to be sensitive to your time, and I appreciate your time. I really enjoyed this. One of the things we come across with, as well as realtors, is diminished capacity, right? At what point is somebody signing something that they, they don't really, even, maybe with good intentions, uh, they don't really understand what they're signing? Um, tell me about that. Is, that. is that more common now? I would imagine there's more people with memory issues and Alzheimer's than ever before. Is that... Is there more litigation in that area as well, or how does that get handled? Yes, lack, lack of competency is a big issue. It's not just uh, specific to wills and trusts, but it also goes to other contracts, contracts for sale and the listing. So you right. have to start when you list a uh, property, you want to make sure that the person you're actually signing the contract with knows the consequences of that agreement yeah. and yeah. can repeat it back to you and communicate it back to you. Yeah. If you have doubts, don't do it. If you have doubts, yeah. go to your broker and say, yeah. hey, I have an issue with this one. What do you think I should do? Um, but it's fairly common that a person signs a listing agreement and they don't understand it. I had this case actually go to litigation where um, a woman who had Alzheimer's disease had signed a real estate agreement the person who was buying the property from her had essentially tried to unduly influence her by offering to give her $100,000 outside of escrow. He did, mm. he actually paid her $100,000 outside of escrow. And he basically had said, you move out and you've got this 100,000. Well, she received the 100,000, but didn't move out. She wasn't there, she wasn't altogether there. And then it, and then about 
a year later, when she couldn't perform, she wasn't able to really carry out the transaction in any way, he sued her. And when my client came, my client was a professional conservator who came in, I was handed a lawsuit that said, go, she, he's getting a default. So the actual buyer was in the process, had already gotten a default and I had to go in and set aside the default, explaining to the court that she's in, she was incompetent essentially no. No. so it did end up settling but um it was a very difficult case stressful because you know she could have lost everything well wow. uh, well i mean when the first listings i was so excited i called the guy on the phone and, and you know i just said we practiced it he agreed everything agreed the appointment i went out there i went to the presentation i was taught to get in and out if they're ready to sign get them to sign I got a phone call from a real estate agent who was working with the attorney. He said, you didn't you realize that he was just you know, overly agreeable? And I said, well, now that you mentioned it, I mean, I was excited to go out there and that's my job, but now that you say that, you know, he said, well, you're probably about the eighth or ninth realtor he signed it with. He just likes talking to people on the phone. He's lonely. And if you offer to come to his house, he's glad to meet with you. And if he likes you, he'll sign whatever papers you give him. But he doesn't know what he's doing, and there's a there's litigation going on. And just so you know, that contract's not probably not binding, but you can do whatever you want with it. And I ended up walking away from it. But I learned a lesson, which was slow down and pay attention because uh, I wasn't aware of it. These these issues, I think, are becoming more regular for us as realtors, and we have to make sure that we're on board. What we don't want to do is get a listing and then have family members call us and accuse us of elder abuse or taking advantage of their clients. And, and we have to be sensitive to those questions. We have a question sometimes that we ask our clients is, ha have you met with many other attorneys before, before you talk to me today? Mm. And that answer actually makes, makes us think more about whether or not we want to take on this case. Sometimes clients have gone to six attorneys and it didn't work out for whatever yeah. reason. Right. And I think realtors could do the same thing. I think you could ask the client, you know, hey, have you signed any agreements with any other realtors right. about this property? Right. And have, how many realtors have you um, engaged uh, with, with respect to this property? Right. That will give you a good uh, frame of mind as to, you know, whether or not, you know, you want to take on that case or whether or not you should that take that case depending on other circumstances. I know really, I, I know you guys are laughing because you think, you know, realtors, you know, when I go to hire a realtor, I might meet with five, you know, when I go to hire a lawyer, I might meet with three or two, however, but those facts that, that come out of that answer lead you to other questions right. that you may want to consider before you take the case on. I think the other thing is networking in your in your case, knowing the other attorney is if somebody comes to you and they've talked to somebody else, you you kind of know who they are. And if they're somebody who's solid, that's gonna be a big red flag. Uh, if they tell you, if they describe what sounds like incompetence and it's somebody and you notice they don't know what they're doing. I've seen cases where the attorney's older than me and, and I can search the probate case files and he hasn't done one in five years. Okay, if the customer I'm I'm inclined to to listen to the client a little bit more than somebody who if he calls and says you're the attorney, uh, I'd call you up and see what the problem was and see if I could help somehow. So it's different. Look, um, we're, we're over time. I, I just, I could talk to you for hours. I, uh, I still remember going to lunch with you pre-COVID uh, and you introduced me to one of the great restaurants uh, uh, in the Valley. Um, but I really appreciate our time so much. I appreciate the work we've much. done. Thanks um, for having me. But let's do a quick commercial though. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, um, your, your uh, best place, circuitlawgroup.com, is that the best way to reach you? Yes, that, that's the best place. And, okay. um, and, on, and the website, they have, yeah, and they are. And there's a phone number there, 818-340-4479. And uh, uh, she's got a crack team. Yes. I called today. And they got that's the best number to reach. Good. Okay. Good. And you'll notice, I think one of the things I would say, when I go to the, the attorney's website, and here's a case, perfect one, what do they do? They do probate. They do, if you hit practice areas, they do probate, trust litigation, wills, contests, and summary probate, foreign wills. Basically, it's all related to this, this area. This is why she and her husband are experts in this field. And that's the kind of attorney that you want to work with, whether it be administration, you'll kind of get pushed to her husband, Evan. And if it's a trust litigation, 
unfortunately. But the good news is you'll work with Mina. Mina, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Appreciate it. And for the rest of you, you got some thank yous there. And for the rest of you, this is Probate Weekly. We do it every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. We do it, we live stream as well to YouTube and Facebook. We had a ton of questions today that I couldn't get to because I got caught up. I tried to answer some of them as we went through uh, with her and, and rephrase some of them. I'm going to download the chat. A few questions. I saw Elizabeth in particular. Love to chat with you about that, um, uh, about how to get business and things like that. Just this wasn't the right the right person or day for that. And I really appreciate a chance to get in deep with, with Mina on the business. But I'll do my best to reach out if you have some questions there. Reach out to me directly, either in the chat box, reply to the emails you're gonna get here today, or call or text me, uh, Bill Gross. I am the LA Probate Expert, and look forward to seeing you guys soon. Thanks so much. If you like this, like it on the YouTube if you're watching on YouTube, and thanks for your support. Hey, it's Bill Gross. I hope you like this video. If you want to join us live every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern, register at probateweekly.com, www.probateweekly.com. And if you like this content, hit the like button and subscribe and hit notifications, and you get notified as soon as we upload every time. Thanks.